When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Jai Chakrabarty, author of the short story collection, A Small Sacrifice for an Enormous Happiness. I think that there's only so much that I'm consciously bringing to the page, and then there are all these subconscious obsessions that I'm carrying around with me, whether they come out through images, through the way a certain sentence sounds, or through a more kind of thematic participation in the story. We'll be back with Jai Chakrabarty after these essential words. First, I want to say thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents nine and a half years of weekly interviews with writers on craft and the literary life. This interview is one piece of an archive of more than 380 conversations that go into depth about how writers create their work and the subject matters that obsess them. And that's why I'm asking you to please support First Draft, a dialogue on writing on Patreon. You can find out more at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. When you donate to First Draft, you're joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that is committed to sharing the insights and challenges of the writing life. And let's be honest, there's so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free to you, but it is not without expense to me in hard costs and in labor. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is a labor of love, but all told from scheduling, preparation, reading time, interviewing, editing, and finalizing each episode, we're talking about a minimum of 15 hours an episode. There's also equipment and subscriptions to interview platforms and sound transcripts and editing software and hosting services for the sound and a website for the archive. And those things added up are not cheap. And all of this, this whole entire colossal effort, takes a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition every week. And please understand, I am the entire show from start to finish. I am the editor, the interviewer, the reader, the researcher, the staff. Sometimes the staff doesn't perform as well as I'd like, but I am the only person performing. So why not consider supporting a woman with a dream to share literary wisdom from some of the world's best writers in a podcast platform. I would say with the number of episodes I've produced, which is actually more than in the archive, 
so more than 400, my track record is pretty stellar. And please beat the odds of having to listen to this message seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. As a thank you, my patrons receive access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Please stay tuned at the end of the show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you mostly for listening and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment, and on to the show. My interview today is with Jai Chakrabarty, author of the novel A Play at the End of the World, which won the National Jewish Book Award for debut fiction, among other awards and nominations. His short fiction has appeared in One Story, Electric Literature, Public Space, and Conjunctions, among other publications. He also writes nonfiction and is a trained computer scientist. His new collection is called A Small Sacrifice for an Enormous Happiness, which contains 14 stories that examine family, class, identity, ethnicity, race, religion, and desire. Many of the stories capture adults longing for children, the limitations of established family roles or societal expectations, how culture both lifts us up and brings us down, and how we can be transformed by loss and grief and profound joy. We began the discussion with me asking Jai Chakrabarty this question. So with A Small Sacrifice for Enormous Happiness, I'm curious kind of if there were certain questions that drove you to this collection, because I see some big commonalities in in the stories that I do want to talk about, but I'm wondering if there were certain obsessions or questions that were really haunting you that you were working out in different ways in these stories. And sometimes I think as the writer, you might not be able to see it like a reader, but curious about that. Yeah. And I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on that because I'm sure there are levels of it that you see that I don't, I was, I was interested in a few different questions. So as I was writing these stories, uh, Alana and I were trying to, um, to conceive and struggling to do so. And then later on, we did have a child and then we struggled with how to raise a child in a tidy apartment away from our families. And so while all of this was happening, I was kind of internalizing these struggles and trying to express them through the short stories in this collection. And so I'll say overwhelmingly, the stories are about this question, these questions of what does it mean to yearn for children? What does it mean to raise a child in this world and doing so oftentimes not with with our birth families but with our cultivated and chosen families because that's kind of where we were in the city um and needed to kind of build our own village to be able to 
retain our sanity. And these stories gave me a way to look at those questions, to connect back to my youth in India, to connect to the Jewish communities that I'd become a part of, and to try and find a common thread throughout. Yes. I mean, that was for sure the most overwhelming sense that I had. I was really quite amazed by all the different lenses that the stories gave about that longing for a child or the inability to have a child or, you know, the death of children or the death of the dream of of having children um, with miscarriages. And I was really stunned, I guess, by how many ways in one collection you could investigate that, which doesn't mean every single story is about that, but a lot of them are. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the the sort of a joy of a collection. And I, I came to fiction from poetry. And I think that one of the things that poetry collections that I really admire do are provide all of these lenses into a single question. And when I think about organizing a story collection, I think about it largely in the same way I think about organizing a collection of poems, but just to say through a thematic journey. And and I'm grateful that the short story form still allows that. I mean, of course, there's link stories and that kind of thing has become very popular these days. But I think this exploration of a single question through many lenses, many frames, I think that the story collection is a great vehicle to still do that through. Something else, and, and we will talk about some of these individual stories that I saw in there was kind of the idea of being a refugee. And I Yes, there are stories where that's literal. You have characters who are refugees, like living in India from um, Afghanistan, but also the broader sense of people escaping something, of maybe Indians living in the U.S. and not achieving success or moving to a different village or losing a spouse and trying to make a new family with someone with such a foreign culture. So I felt like there was a lot of energy around the the concept of being a refugee or a foreigner or an escapee of some kind. Yeah, the dedication of my novel was to anyone who's crossed a border in search of home. And so I feel like in some ways that... Um, that still makes sense for this collection because there are so many stories where characters have been displaced or are refugees um, in some capacity or another. And it connects back to my own personal experience as well there. So my maternal grandparents, they were from what is now called Bangladesh and crossed over the border to India with very little and had to start a new life. And so some of the stories explore that sense of loneliness and migration and displacement. And when you go from one place to another, you kind of have to start a new family. 
even if you're bringing along your children, your partner, the larger extended family is, I think, a new construct that you kind of have to create in the new place. So for me, place and family are very strongly tied together. And feel like that's kind of all part of the same conversation. I don't know how conscious you were. And I think as writers, you know, we have our obsessions for life. Like you're going to see the same themes come up in different stories. Like, whereas you were saying in your novel uh, that was dedicated to people crossing borders, this one was more focused on this longing for children but this other obsession of yours came in or interest of yours came in. And I wonder sometimes if as a writer, even when you maybe want to let go of certain things that occupy your mind, you either can't or they're so deep in your subconscious, like it came out in these stories, even though you didn't know that was going to happen. I think that's right. I I think that, there's only so much that I'm consciously bringing to the page. And then there are all these subconscious obsessions that I'm carrying around with me, whether they come out through images, through the way a certain sentence sounds, or through a more kind of thematic participation in the story. But but I, I absolutely agree with that overall sentiment. I mean, I, I don't ascribe full agency to my conscious self at all when I'm when I'm writing. And I and, and I do think it 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 makes sense because there are certain certain things that are very hard to let go of um, for any of us, whether it's to do with trauma or whether it's to do with a migration story or whatever that may be for each one of us. And so even if we're writing about vastly different subjects, I think there are ways in which the, the, the story decides to do what it will and our subconscious, you know, dances along with that. I also saw in here a lot of parental pressure um i don't know if that's um something that i mean stereotypically i think people would ascribe that to maybe indian parents uh or maybe indian immigrants i don't know if that is um a fair assessment but i saw a lot of um parents in here who put a lot of pressure on their children parents who manipulated in their children's lives, in their love lives, to try to get outcomes that they wanted to see for their kids? Yeah, yeah, certainly. And I I will say that there's the parental pressure and there's this sort of larger issue of tradition and the ways in which tradition can become a coercive force and can affect decisions that characters are making on a day-to-day basis and can affect the inflection points in these stories in particular. So I was certainly thinking about parents and the role they play, but I was thinking as, as well about kind of the larger structure in which 
this kind of traditional orthodoxy might happen and why it's the case that a Bengali Brahmin parent may want their child to marry a Bengali Brahmin, for example. You know, I mean, I think it's it's at, at a character level, I'm of course really interested in the parents, but I'm also really interested in thinking about that structure and how it comes to be. And same with the Jewish parents who want the bride to be to convert and don't even tell their son, like kind of force it upon this bride to be. Yeah. So there's two stories in there that I meant to be almost as a couplet. So a mother's work and searching for Elijah. And both of them, I think, are conversations about a certain kind of orthodoxy and a certain way in which tradition Tradition has a very strong role in the choices we make at the level of our relationships and who we can love or and who we can't love and how we enter into those covenants. And so I wanted to look at it not just from Indian culture, but also through my own experience of, of another culture, um, the Jewish culture as well. And and one more thing I, I saw in the stories, and then we can talk about them, was that you had a lot of characters who were um, painters, and there was also a lot of moments where people sang. I hadn't noticed the painter uh, painter thing until you mentioned it, so that's I'm going to have to think about that one, but um, but I love it, and the singing is is something that I. I am aware of, and I think that comes back to my childhood. So there was just a lot of singing going on when I was a kid. Um, I, I, I myself trained in Indian classical vocal music. My mom sang on uh, All India Radio, and everyone around us was just like singing all the time. And when there would be power failures, as there would be all the time in Calcutta back in those days, people would get together and do song circles. Everybody would sing a song and kind of trade off that sort of thing. So, um, so that feels very much to me like a slice of home and a, sort of a comforting thing that I come back to. Um, and I'll have to think more about the painting. Yeah, there were a few characters that were painters. I I guess we we knew quite a few painters or growing up in in Calcutta in our in our circle and it's possible that some of them uh became shadows or impressions for the characters in these stories. One of the things that I used to talk about in my graduate school is what is literary fiction? How do you define it? And one of the definitions was that literary fiction is fiction that talks to other fiction. So it kind of references fiction of the past. And I think sometimes I've gotten to the point in this podcast where I've, I've just talked to so many people that sometimes things come around in conversations I've had with other people and you're 
story, a small sacrifice for enormous happiness just happened to be a story that, um, we talked about in an episode that was, that aired in late January and it was in a craft book by Peter Turchi and he was kind of analyzing your story and your use of sweets. And the basic premise of the story is that there's two men that are of a different class and socioeconomic status in India. One is named Nikhil. Is that how you pronounce it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. One is named Nikhil and the other is Sharma. And they have a relationship and Nikhil wants a child so badly, but he set Sharma up in this ruse of a marriage to protect um, their secret. And he wants the wife of Sharma to have a child that then they can raise. But that doesn't really sit that well with Sharma. And it's kind of about the conflict between their desires and Peter Turchi was talking about your use of sweets in the story and how Nikhil kind of celebrated this decision with this big, beautiful display of like high end sweets for Sharma. But when he goes to Sharma's house and things start to erode, the sweets in the story get less um, delicious and less beautiful. And so I want to talk about the story in general, but also just want to talk. I, I know you listened to that episode, what it was like to hear that. And did it feel accurate to you? And were you thinking about that when you were writing the story? Yeah, I love the way in which Peter talked about that story. Um, and I'm grateful for him for that close reading. So I I do think a lot about food where, and not just sweets, but but food in general. And I think they have a large role to play in these stories. And so in that story in particular, in the beginning, there's this elaborate tower of sweets. And it's something that Nikhil has worked on. And, you know, there's, I think, a line that if you misstep you're going to upset their delectable geometry or something like that and it's it's something that's that's quite beautiful and then later and and is also i i think conveys the mood of the story and Nikhil's sense of expectation later on there's a scene in uh the restaurant it's an actual restaurant in calcutta called jimmy's uh, Chinese kitchen. And there the food is, of course, not homemade. It's made in a restaurant. And it's not at all like some of the other food references that we've had in the story, because at that point, the relationship is teetering because of Nikhil's imposition and his incredibly strong desire to have a child and Sharma's resistance to it. And so I am thinking about how food is tracking the mood throughout the story. I, it, it is not, it's, you know, I don't know if I do it in first draft, but it is something that I certainly will look at in, um, 
subsequent drafts is like, you know, what are, what are people eating? What are they, you know, looking at? How is that changing? And I guess I'll just in general think about what are the, the recurring motifs in the story, whether it's food or, or something else. And something that Hannah Tinty talked to us about all the way back in grad school was that if you've got something that is working for you, then there's no harm in bringing it out again. You just need to make sure that when you do bring it out again, it's serving the story in that moment. And so for me, I, I enjoy writing about food in, in, in a lot of my stories. And so I need to then think about, well, if I'm going to bring it up in a scene, what is it doing for that scene? And, and, and so, so I suppose I'm conscious of that when I bring up things repetitively in any story is what is this doing as a motif? I think this idea that we talked about of longing for a child was um, pervasive through these stories. And this is the title story. And basically one of the things, you know, that Nikhil says to Sharma that um, having a child, I can't remember exactly the context um, in their situation and the, um, the fact that Sharma's married, he was saying it's a small sacrifice for an enormous happiness. So that's what it, what it really refers to is like the sacrifices you make to have a child. And after reading the collection and seeing the longing for a child, I thought it was really interesting to open the book with such intense pressure because the I think the pressure is even more because there are two men. And that's why I was sort of curious if you had written that first, because it was like, it felt like a, almost like a crescendo in the, in the desire in the collection. Yeah, no, I, I think it does frame the collection because of everything that you've mentioned, because the desire is so strong. And also because I think it brings up this question of tradition as we've talked about and how that holds us back. And also because of the way in which that story explores class, which is that Nikhil is a wealthy or an upper middle class man and Sharba is um, in comparison quite poor and dependent on Nikhil for many things. And that was yet another thing that I explored throughout these stories is the role of class. And perhaps we'll talk about it in some of the other stories, but like this question of adoption then comes up as it relates to class later on. And throughout, I wanted to kind of find a story that set up all of these themes. And I, and I thought that the, the title story did that reasonably well and the line that you read the you know it's uh, this wanting a child it's a small sacrifice for an enormous happiness comes with great irony of course because it's not a small sacrifice to to uh to ask someone to carry a child to conceive and bear a child and 
um, the happiness that it brings is highly questionable. So I, you know, I wanted to also set that as a tone and an expectation for the collection. I, I do think there is quite a bit of happiness in moments throughout these stories, but but I think it's something that characters are wrestling with. Yeah, and it just seemed like, I mean, I think you're talking about tradition and maybe it was really obvious to you, but that um, to make the couple's relationship untraditional put even more pressure on the story. It just ratcheted it up. So like craft-wise, in a way, I think there's a good lesson there that sometimes you change maybe the power dynamic. And that's something I talked about too with Peter of the character's relationship to um, each other, or in this case, also the society they lived on, because you could have maybe written this story in some way between a man and a woman that just didn't agree. Maybe they were still having an affair or something, but when you really change the dynamics of it being two men in a very traditional culture, it just raise the stakes so much from the very beginning. I, I think that that's that's entirely right. And I suppose a question that I ask when I'm sitting down to write a story is are is what are the base assumptions here? And are those serving the questions that I want to explore? And I think it's really hard to change the base assumptions once you are really deep into a story in a later draft or even at the end of a first draft. But I think if one of the things I like to do is just kind of sit with a story idea or walk more accurately with a story idea for a while, just to think about it a little bit and think, is this the story that I want to write? Is this, you know, the right set of circumstances that will bring about the crucible that I'm interested in exploring, that I'm interested in walking into. And, and yeah, I mean, I think the fact that it is a non-traditional relationship, that it is set in 1980 in India at a time when such a relationship would be even more prohibitive and that there's a class difference and all of these other elements add to the the cauldron that is the story. We'll be right back to this interview after some words about one of the sponsors of this episode. Have you ever heard of Scribophile? It's an online community where writers from beginners to published professionals can submit work and get feedback from readers around the world. Published authors say the community of readers helps them hone their craft and become better storytellers. You can also learn about specific writing topics with Scribophile's new array of video-based writing classes in fiction and nonfiction. Best-selling author L.S. Hawker is leading a class on writing page-turning thrillers, and Karen Albright-Lynn, award-winning novelist and editor, shares instruction on mastering the art of subtext. Those are just two of many classes offered this spring on topics from novel writing to character development. Classes run from two to six weeks and feature live face-to-face video, a unique personal format among the variety of writing classes offered on the web. 
Classes feature enough time for you to ask questions and have meaningful discussions on craft. Learn more about Scribophile's online reading and writing community and all the class offerings at Scribophile.com. That's S-C-R-I-B-O-P-H-I-L-E.com. And now back to the interview. You mentioned the idea of adoption and the last story. So these are kind of framing stories for the book is called The Fortunes of Others. And it's about a character named Kabuliwala, who he is a refugee from Afghanistan and he lost his family, including his little boy in Afghanistan. And he's in India just really scraping by doing whatever jobs he can. He's on the move. You know, he's really, sometimes it's only one meal a day and he meets a little kid near a train station named, named Sundar, which means beautiful. And he was kind of um, begging for ice cream and the Kabuliwala just kind of takes him um, on, I mean, Sundar asks basically to be taken with him. Like if, can he go with him and live this life? He doesn't have family. He has a little dog and they end up getting on the train and going, um, to Puri, which is, I think a, uh, a town with maybe, uh, an ashram or a monastery on the water. And he basically just adopts this little boy and he goes to school one day a week and he helps Kabuliwala in his shop where he makes paintings and makes um, art figures for tourists to buy. And there's a woman named Hannah who's at the monastery nearby and she starts taking a liking to Sundar. And you could feel it's told from the Kabuliwala's perspective and you can feel his wanting and his like not the replacement of his son that died, but just getting a second chance to raise a kid that almost felt more meaningful because he thought he would never get that again. And at the same time, Hannah's kind of moving in on Sundar and ends up wanting to take him and the Kabuliwala, which you question, back to America. So it's this finding of, this unexpected finding of maybe having a child again and then losing it again. And also thinking about, like, what is the best future for this little boy? Yeah, that story is in conversation with another story in the collection called Daisy Lane, where an American couple are going to India to bring home the child that they are expecting to adopt and a set of surprises befalls them which I won't go too much into but but I wanted to explore that scenario but from not the American perspective which is how that story is told in Daisy Lane but from the story of someone who is who is a South Asian, um, in this case, an Afghani, and how that might feel from this other perspective. The fortunes of others and the Kabuliwala character who appears in another story in the collection is also in some ways an homage for me with the work of Robindanath Thakur, and I played with the work of Rabindranath in my novel as well, uh, but 
there's a very famous story by Rabindranath that's called the Kabuliwala. And in that story, there's this Afghani merchant who comes and visits a family, and it's told from the point of view of the father of this family. And every year he comes and has a really nice rapport and starts to develop just a very sweet relationship with the daughter, um, the, the daughter, the father's daughter, a young girl. And as she grows older, there's a kind of heartbreaking moment where she's no longer as interested in the Kabuliwala and his visits and the stories that he tells and the little sweets he brings for her. She's um, grown up. And that sense of growing up, and I think about David White's line where he says that for parents, your children don't have to do anything to break your heart except to grow older. I I think Rabindranath captured that so beautifully in this story, and I wanted to come back to it on my own and find a way to talk about adoption and also to talk about this second life, this idea of a second life, and all of the emotions that would come to this man um, who is considering what is best for his adoptive son and what is best for him. So that that story, The Fortunes of Others, is probably the one that I connect with the most in the collection. Well, that's interesting, too, the connection to Tagore's story. So I'm, I'm curious what your experience for you, I just, you know, mentioned a few minutes ago about literary fiction is fiction to, that talks to other fiction. And it sounds like that is some of your experience as a writer. So what is your experience of writing a story that is either in response or um, heavily influenced by a story that you had read? Yeah, I mean, I love that definition of literary fiction being a long conversation. And I think that that can be extended in so many ways, because when we sit down to write, we are indebted <laughs> to so many writers who have uh, paved paths for us. We are in conversation with those writers. And I do think that it goes back to this idea of being in relationships. So I think when I'm re reading a story, I feel like I'm in a relationship with the writer of the story. And when I'm writing, I feel like I'm in relationship with other writers who the story is in conversation with. And I don't think I see it as much or as directly in fiction as I as I do in in poetry, for example. I mean, in, in poetry, it's very common for a poem to be written for another poet. And, you know, I think about like, for example, Laurie Moore's story, Referential, which was um, a homage to Nabokov's story, Signs and Symbols. And she's really kind of playing around with the way in which that Nabokov story works in a different, more modern context. And I don't see as much of that. I would love to see more of it. Um, 
so that's kind of the direct conversation, I guess. But but all throughout, I I, I like your your definition of there being um, a conversation at maybe a more subtextual level. And what is your what is your experience like? If you can explain it, writing a story like this that has a character name from Tagore's story. And the ideas you were exploring were the same. Like, how do you do that? Is that something where you go back to the story and you keep reading it for more clues? Or do you just let that be sort of a deeper guide that you're curious about and hold the questions from the story, but not like literally look at the story? Yeah. So in my, in my novel, which, um, has as its frame of reference a Tagore play, which is called The Post Office, I went back and tried to find a translation for that play myself. So that was kind of the way in which I found a deeper intimacy with that work because it's so important to that novel. With this particular story, it's you know it's such a famous story in in um, Bengali culture. I mean, I think uh, I would be surprised if anyone who went to school in uh, Bengal uh, finished school without reading the story once. So, so it's it's one of those classics that I feel is almost uh, inside of my body in some way that I can refer back to certain feelings or emotions and and where that tracks uh, in my body in a somatic sense when I think about that story. So I almost needed a bit more distance from it in, in, in this case. And as I was thinking about these stories, as I was walking around with the idea of fortunes of others, you know, I didn't go back to the Tagore story immediately. I really felt like I needed a bit more space to be able to um, to be able to do my own thing uh, and, and not to make it be something that is repetitive or seems derivative of the Tagore original, which, you know, is especially challenging given the um, given the emphasis and focus Tagore has in Bengali culture. He's oftentimes compared to Shakespeare in terms of his contribution to letters. I think underneath in some of these stories is also death. There's characters who are dying, characters who have dementia, um, characters who come back after death of a family member to maybe come back to the home, um, a spouse who has died and the wife going on. And in one of your, I think it's the shortest story in your collection. It's only about four pages called Lessons with Father. You have um, kind of a paragraph all by itself that it doesn't depart from the story, but it's like a moment of deep reflection in the story. And it says, I grew up in a country accustomed to death. It was no special privilege So many of us witnessed riots, mothers dragged by their braids, skullcaps burned, so many heads lifted onto pyres, and with all the vigor of public ceremony set to flame. Still, it's different when you see the slow unraveling. I'm just curious about death, both 
culturally, because I think this really references a lot of what you might see in India, like just the idea of the pyres. Like I was so amazed when I was in India that it's so public, like it's so on the street, especially in Varanasi, that you see death. And I, I'm just curious about maybe a reaction to my seeing the death in, in all these stories and, and folding that in. Yeah, I think I think that it is more public in India. Um, it certainly was more so when I was a kid. Um, and you know, I also my my parents are now retired philosophy professors, and my mom, uh, one of the books that she. Uh, she uh, gave to me when I was a teenager is the Tibetan book of the dead, you know? So it's like, I, I think I also got a lot of this from my parents, this kind of question about, well, what is, um, what is dying, you know, like, is there life after life and what does it mean to die? And so I think that's, that's in general been something that I have been, been interested in. And I do think that, um, you know, going back to that Tagore play, Dakar, that is very much a play about what is mortality and what is um, what is the experience of transitioning from this life into the next. Uh, and so I think that's been kind of a consistent, again, another consistent uh, question or obsession in my work that probably tracks back to my childhood. And I do think the way in which it's considered and observed in Indian culture is quite different oftentimes from the way I've seen it observed or considered in many facets of American culture. And there's so many reasons for it, but I, but I think that it, it, it certainly has an influence in how I think about story and where my characters will sort of go within that framework. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about endings. I think short stories can sometimes be really confounding to end. And I think your story endings seem to like go back to a small moment within the story, or go back to a small moment within the characters' lives. It doesn't, they don't reference back to some major reckoning with the meaning or goings on of the whole story, if that makes sense. They're just maybe picking a small moment and there's 14 endings. So I'm not, you know, you can't, I can't describe all of them, but I'm wondering if, if what I make, what I'm saying makes some sense to you and how you approach endings. Yeah. In, in general, I am, when I'm writing the story, I am trying to walk into the, into this liminal space. So, um, I, I like to think that as, as is the case with, I think, lyric poems that I love, that the poem is walking toward this deeper truth that can't quite be expressed in words, that the English language or whatever language is insufficient to hold it, but the poem is pointing you in the direction of that truth. And so um, as readers, we experience it emotionally, even if we don't get all of the words, because the words can't be said. There are no words for some of that 
And that's what I mean by the liminal space and stories, which is like, as we're moving toward the ending, um, it's for me, it's like going to that place of what we can't quite say, you know, as, as poets would describe it as the ineffable. And I think that oftentimes can be done by an image or by, as you say, a small moment or a memory. And it's to charge up this, this emotion uh, that perhaps is very difficult to, to find on the page without sentimentality or simply that can't be written on the page. Can you read a passage from an author that influenced you as a writer? Yeah. So I am going to read from Bernard Malamud's story, The First Seven Years. And I'm going to read toward the end of the story. So it's about a shoemaker and his assistant. And the assistant is in love with the shoemaker's daughter. So the shoemaker says, Sobel, you are crazy, he said bitterly. She will never marry a man so old and ugly like you. Sobel turned black with rage. He cursed the shoemaker, but then, though he trembled to hold it in, his eyes filled with tears and he broke into deep sobs. With his back to Feld, he stood at the window, fists clenched, and his shoulders shook with his choked sobbing. Watching him, the shoemaker's anger diminished. His teeth were on edge with pity for the man, and his eyes grew moist. How strange and sad that a refugee, a grown man, bald and old with his miseries, who had by the skin of his teeth escaped Hitler's incinerators, should fall in love when he had got to America with a girl less than half his age, day after day, for five years, he had sat at his bench, cutting and hammering away, waiting for the girl to become a woman, unable to ease his heart with speech, knowing no protest but desperation. Ugly, I didn't mean, he said, half aloud. Then he realized that what he had called ugly was not Sobel, but Miriam's life if she married him. He felt for his daughter a strange and gripping sorrow, as if she were already Sobel's bride, the wife, after all, of a shoemaker, and had in her life no more than her mother had had. And all his dreams for her, why he had slaved and destroyed his heart with anxiety and labor, all these, all these dreams of a better life were dead. The room was quiet. Sobel was standing by the window reading. And it was curious that when he read, he looked young. And I, you know, I picked this, um, I picked this story and this scene in particular. We talked a little bit earlier about power dynamics in a story, and it's something that Peter Turchi was talking about in your conversation as well. And I think that this story is such a remarkable exploration of power dynamics. So you have here the shoemaker who's been employing his assistant, who at the beginning of the story has one kind of relationship with him, 
And then as we get into this moment where it becomes clear that the assistant Sobel is absolutely essential in many ways, and the relationship changes dramatically. And in this scene, there's so much movement between who has the power and who doesn't. And so many layers of that power, so much nuance there, because even as he is surrendering some power, he's also recognizing the deep sorrow and suffering that Sobel has gone gone through. And even as he's conscious of sadness, even as he's conscious of the fact that Miriam's life, his daughter, may not be a great life in and by his standards, there's also kind of happiness as well as sort of, I think, joy, um, a very understated joy. But I think all of that is coming together in the scene. And there's so much emotional transference happening between these two characters. And I learned a lot from, from Malamud um, about how to structure that in a, in a story and something I um, was influenced by for many years afterward. Can you read a passage from something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft or something you liked. Sure. So I'm going to read from the end of the story, Lilavati's Fire. And what I need to say about this story is that it's about a woman who has been working on building an airplane in her garage secretly from her husband. And we've talked about walls in this conversation. So there is a kind of emotional wall between her and her husband and this, uh, this project that she's undergoing is certainly a part of, of that whole story. Later that night, when she'd retired to her bed and Harish had retired to his on the other side of the nightstand, she stayed awake for a while to hear the music of the cicadas, but Harish's snoring was supreme. So she went outside in her nightdress and heard them on the lawn. She sat on the grass and smelled the honeysuckle planted next door. As a girl in Kolkata, she had sucked the honey from the beaks of these flowers living inside their smell, drunk with life. She stared at her air chariot on the concrete. It seemed to stare back with derision. She'd used the drawings of an ancient mathematician who'd never known of Newton, of his third law of action, equal reaction, and when the miracle of flight had not come and she was still on the ground, she did not think of Newton or Bernoulli's principle of how curves under pressure create the most important form, lift. She thought instead of that first moment when Sanjay had come out from her body and the nurse had passed him into her arms as if he were the most precious gift and all she had thought then as Harish looked on, weak-kneed and teary-eyed, was how ugly her little boy seemed, how covered with blood on his sagging skin, but she held him anyway with his cave of a mouth, with his arms outstretched like a fledgling bird. And so I worked a lot on that ending 
because I wanted there to be, you know, the, the soup of emotions um, that I, you know, referring to the Malamud story that I think is, that I think we're witnessing in that scene. I, I wanted it to be present in the ending there. Uh, I wanted uh, quite a few things to, to be available to the reader uh, and for there to be a propulsive sense at the end as well, that this is, you know, I think there's a sadness in the story, but also I think perhaps a, a note of uplift as well. And I wanted that to be in the ending. And it took me a few tries, quite a few tries to, um, to get to that. Where do you write? I write in a small uh, room in my house in the Hudson Valley. And I have a good bit of sunlight coming in now where I can look out at some trees and I'm a little bit away from the road. So it's nice and quiet. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I take lots of walks. So I go on hikes. I am privileged to be surrounded by beautiful trails. So I spend a lot of my time walking and just thinking about writing um, and, you know, trying to compose some parts of the story in my head. And oftentimes I'll have at least the rhythm of something or the start of something in my head when I sit down to actually write at my type, at my, um, I was going to say typewriter, but my computer. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? My partner, the poet Alana Bell. So she's my first reader and will give me some clear, honest, sometimes even brutal feedback. How have you dealt with rejection? So if it's something that I care about and I um, have been looking forward to, thinking about a lot, I, I struggle mightily with rejection in the moment. I, I think harking back to an earlier part of our conversation, um, what I what I do try to work toward is then like sort of separating the the external uh, the external a reward or the external achievement from from my own identity and from my own sense of self worth. But that usually takes me a few days. And what I ultimately get back to is just the habit of writing. And I remember the poet Stephen Dunn was once asked, "Well, why do you?" keep writing poems. Uh, and he said, habit. And I think that's a very honest answer. And, and I suppose that for me, just the cultivation of a regular writing practice is the most effective way that I deal with rejection. And what is your favorite word? I went back and forth on this one, but I mentioned ineffable earlier in the conversation. So I'm going to go with that. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Mitzi. This was a lovely conversation. If you like today's show with Jai Chakrabarty, author of the short story collection, A Small Sacrifice for an Enormous Happiness, check out my interview with Madhuri Vijay, author of the novel, The Far Field. She talked about writing a journey story, growing up in Bangalore, India, and resisting stereotypical narratives. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 390 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. 
Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping the show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Mona Simpson, Rebecca Mackay, and Maggie Smith. In June, we're coming up on the 10th anniversary of First Draft. If you have ideas on how we can best celebrate, drop me a line at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.